Amen. This morning we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and looking at verses 19 through 27. Um, now before we dive into this, this is kind of a, a missionary type passage. This is a, a passage that very much is written to, uh, to make us think about our, our obligation to, to the mission that God has given us and, and how we strategically go about that mission. And it made me think of this, uh, this story that I had heard um, from a missionary one time. This guy who's, he had been a missionary for, for many, many years, but at the, when he first started, um, he uh, kind of went out with this, uh, this more experienced missionary. He was a, a brand new missionary, and they were going deep into uh, the jungles and to, to see this tribe. Um, and, and they get into where this tribe lives, and they are all um, kind of sitting down for a meal. And, uh, and the experienced missionary sees them the, the laying out the dishes and everything, and, um, and he kind of goes like, okay, well, hey, uh, this, because it all looks weird to, to the, the, new, the new young missionary. Um, and, and so he goes, okay, well, hey, this here, um, this is dog meat. And, uh, and so the, the new missionary goes like, oh, okay, good, good to know, I'll, I'll avoid that. And the, the old missionary goes, oh, no, 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 no. Um, that's your best bet. That's your best option. Of what's been laid out, that's what you'll be most comfortable with. Which shows like, just how, uh, how, how much missionaries can get in, engaged into a culture. Right? That this old experienced missionary, he, he was such a part of the culture that he had almost even forgotten the taboos of the culture that he came from and, and the fact that this guy might also think of that as taboo um, to, to eat dog meat, certainly. And, uh, but, but he had adapted to and embraced the culture of the people that he was sent to reach. And that's very much what Paul will be talking about today um, in this passage. We'll look here first at verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So Paul really speaks to this fact that he has become a servant to all people. We see him say, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And what he's really speaking to is what we talked about last week, um, where Paul the last couple of weeks, he's been examining this idea of, can they eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And he argues very strongly for the fact that they, they can. They do have that right. And he also then argues for his own right to make his living from the gospel and to take along a believing wife. Um, he, he argues very strongly for his Christian freedom that he has found in Christ. And yet, he says, in spite of the fact that I am free from all, I have no obligation to anybody because he recognizes that he is free from the law. 
He is free from that. It's not where he finds his righteousness. That freedom that we have in Christ is found in the gospel, and it's the freedom that comes from the fact that because Jesus has done everything, because on the cross he accomplished righteousness for us, we can be free from the law. We, don't get our, we get our righteousness from him, not from our own works, not from the law that we might find. It's not about what we do, it's about what he has done. So though we might be motivated and might desire to live the way that God wants us to live, the way that he designed us to live, and we might have a desire to please Christ, it is a different motivation than a religious motivation to moralistically earn our salvation. And that's what Paul champions. And he says, in spite of that freedom, he's made himself a servant to all. What a tremendous statement. If we consider just what that means, I think it's a, it's a familiar passage. So sometimes we just kind of roll over it like, yeah, I'm free from all. I've made myself a servant to all. Sure, sure. But what a powerful statement Paul is making there where he says, I subordinate myself to everyone. Everyone that I meet, I make myself a servant to. He's taken on the humility of Christ that we see him write about in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, where he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul points out this fact that Jesus became a servant for us, that he set aside the use of his divine rights in order to be born in the likeness of men. He then humbled himself so much that he allowed hands that he created to nail him to a cross. In order to save humans, Jesus took on human form and lived among us. And what Paul is going to encourage us to in this passage is very much rooted in that idea. The idea that Jesus, in order to save humans, became human. That he took on the form of those he was trying to save. And that that is still how he would like us to take the gospel to the world. So Paul explains what this servant attitude looks like in his own life and ministry. And first off, He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. And what a weird place for Paul to start because he is a Jew. He's an exemplary Israelite. He's the top of the top. He's the Korean. He he was an extremely religious, extremely pious Pharisee, super successful. Like He was near the top of his field. He had memorized almost all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He had memorized most of that. The Law of Moses is also called. He had memorized a lot of that. He was uh, actively persecuting Christians when Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus, which again, in his world, among Israelites, was you know the badge of honor like hey I'm a I'm a crime fighter I'm a, I'm stopping these false messiah cult that's going around 
He was premier, and yet, he, how, so how can he say to the Jews that became a Jew? Because again, he had been set free from the law of Moses. He was no longer bound to obey its ceremonial commands. But even the law's moral commands were not what motivated Paul's behavior. His love for Christ is what motivated Paul's behavior. Oftentimes, when we talk about the Old Testament law, we kind of split it into two things, right? We have the, the ceremonial law. That's all the, the strange stuff about sacrifices, the stuff about wearing mixed fabrics, uh, sowing two types of seed in the same field, all those kind of things. That's the ceremonial law. And then we have the moral law, which then we tend to uphold. Those are things like the Ten Commandments, right? That, that you know, shall not murder, shall not steal, those kind of things. Like, oh, those are just good moral law. What Paul is saying is that he's been set free from all of it. Because it's not, it, it, that, that law, while he might still agree with a lot of the, the, the concepts and still believe that it is God's word and that it is holy and it is God's way, it is not through that law that he finds his righteousness. So while he might do a, still, still follow that moral law, he says, I am set free from that law. Because it is not what, what binds me. It is not what convicts me because I have no longer, there is no condemnation in Christ because we've been set free from the law. He's saying I'm set free from all this because it is not where I find my righteousness. I find my righteousness in Jesus alone. So therefore his motivation to live according to God's moral law is simply to please Christ, that he wants to, out of, in response to what Jesus has done for him, uh, obey Christ but not to earn his own salvation. Paul believed in this freedom from the law so much that he fought strongly, argued with people for Gentile believers not to have to be circumcised. And that was a big debate in the early church was that, uh, you know, do they need to get circumcised? That, that's the number one main way that Israelite males identified themselves as God's people. They got circumcised as, on the eighth day. And that marked them as people of the covenant. And so the question then, when, when Gentile believers are going to come in and adopt their, this Jewish Messiah, do they need to become Israelites first in order to become Christians? In order to follow Jesus, do they need to become Jewish? And the number one way they would do that is to be circumcised. Paul argues, no, we've been set free from that law. And there's a big debate about it. You can read it in Acts 15, um, where he has this big debate in Acts 15, and he's debating with the Jerusalem council, and, and they're going back and forth, and he's explaining you know, why they have freedom here. And in Romans 2 and 3, he argues through it. He kind of concludes with this chapter here in uh, this, these verses here in Romans chapter 3, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? He has this big debate. He argues for it. He writes about it in his letters. And then he circumcises Timothy in Acts 16. What chapter did I say that argument was in? 15. Can you imagine being Timothy? 
Like, Timothy's probably there when Paul is having this debate with the Jerusalem council. And he's, and he's got to be like leaving as he's traveling with Paul and he's doing ministry with Paul. He's got to be leaving going like, man, Paul, you knocked it out of the park. That's so, like, so good. Like freedom from the law. Yeah, you rocked it. And they, they believed. They, they, you convinced them. That's awesome. And then Paul's like, yeah, come on, we got to circumcise you. What? You know, Timothy got to be like, wait, 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 what about all of that? You just, you just tore those guys up. Like, what are you talking about? Well, Acts 16 tells us Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew his father was a Greek. They were going to go do ministry among the Jews. So they were going to have to start acting like, a good, like good Israelites. And for Timothy, that meant he needed to be circumcised so that Paul could bring him along with him and he would be able to do ministry alongside Paul. The mission was number one for Paul. It is not about that circumcision meant anything for Timothy aside from qualifying him for ministry, allowing him to come and do ministry there among the Jews. And, and recognize that this is not something that, like Timothy was it younger than Paul. He's a full-grown young man. And Paul's old at this point. Like this isn't something where Paul could have like forcibly made him do this. Timothy could have gotten away. He convinced Timothy of this because again, he had his priorities straight and the, God, the mission was number one. And Timothy agreed to do this because he also wanted to do this for the sake of the gospel. So when Paul was among the Jews, he followed all of the ceremonial law and customs and he knew, because he knew if he was going to win them, he needed to be like them. So he's not coming in trying to shock them with like, hey, look, I'll do whatever I want and, and, and do all these things. Like, No, he's going to come in and, and live like a Jew. Even though he has been doing ministry among the Gentiles, he'll go among all these different people and he'll do different things when he's with different groups. But when he comes around the Jews, he's going to follow this, their customs. He's going to follow their ceremonial law because he wants to reach them with the gospel. But when he's not with them, and he's with those who are outside the law of Moses. He lives like one who is outside the law of Moses. He lives like an outlaw. He simply did not obey the ceremonial law and Jewish customs. This would mean that he ate unclean food and did things that would have made him ceremonially unclean when he was among the Gentiles. So he wouldn't sin, but he would do whatever outside of that, whatever the people that he was trying to do reach were doing. He would do whatever it took. He would, do, he would just try to blend in, try to be part of them, be among them. So for Paul, that would have looked like, that, that actually probably would have been harder. It certainly would have been more uncomfortable for Paul to do that than to, do, uh, than to live as, as a Jew. Because that was his culture. That's how he grew up. So all of the foods, like we're talking about um, eating things that are clean and unclean. Like we talked about that when we studied Leviticus. Um, so for Paul, pork would have been something that was ceremonially unclean, but it was eaten among the Gentiles all the time. So if he went to, to the house of a Gentile and they were serving dinner, they served pork, Paul would eat it. But for him, that would be uncomfortable. It would be like, you know, when I started off, and I talked about that, that story of the dog meat. And I really thought you guys would think that was funnier than it was, than you did. But I know why. They, because they also didn't laugh at it at first service. Um, 
And I realize it's because the thought of that is like really uncomfortable for you. Right, like that, like just the thought of like being in that situation and someone telling you this dog meat is the best option for you makes you physically ill. That's what it would probably be like for some, for 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 Paul or any Israelite to go and eat and be offered pork. That was not considered food. That was considered an animal that you don't eat. Right, you all have we. We have in our culture animals that you eat and don't eat, right? And that's why whenever that's brought up, it's like the idea of eating that animal is disgusting. Even though it's, a, it's just a different mammal, it's essentially the same thing. But there are things that we've said that we don't eat that. And for Paul, that's probably what it would have been like the first time he was served pork. He wasn't like, yes, right? No, he was probably like, ooh, this is uncomfortable because that's, that's outside the Jewish law. That's not something that the, that the Israelites ate because the law of Moses said they shouldn't eat it. We are now free from that, right? Because we've been set free by, by the blood of Jesus. And we'll celebrate that next Sunday when we have the barbecue. We'll be serving some pulled pork in celebration of the freedom that Jesus has given us. So but for Paul, he would live like those who were outside the law when he was among them. He would also live like the weak when he was among the weak. And this is bringing him back around to the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. He reminds them that among those who were easily tempted, he avoids doing things that would tempt them. He's willing to take on the conscience of someone who is weaker, who is much less free in order to win them. And he wraps this all up by saying, basically, I'll become all things to all people. Whoever I go among... I'm going to live like them. The mission of God is Paul's priority. And so whatever it would take to reach those people, he's going to try to adapt to that group. He's going to try to do what it takes to preach the gospel and reach the people that he's been called to reach. Missionaries do this all the time to this day, right? Paul was a missionary. That's why he writes this way. Missionaries to this day do that. And they go to different cultures. They adopt the policies and they adopt the practices of that people group. Youth pastors do it too. I was a youth pastor for 14 and a half years. And sometimes people don't understand that, right? Something as simple as, and this was not that long ago. This was probably like six years ago. Um, I was getting, it was a, a, a day we had youth group. Um, and I was um, sitting in my office and it was going to be, it was in the summer. So it was like, we were going to have a big water fight. So I was wearing like board shorts and flip flops and a tank top. And uh, someone from the church came in, a man, an adult man came in, and he wanted to talk to me about something. So he came in and sat down and talked to me, and he was kind of strange. Um, and then he finished talking to me, and he got out and from my office across the hallway, to, across the, the entryway to uh, the senior pastor's office and went in and complained to him about how I was dressed, that it was inappropriate for me to be dressed that way. And it, basically, he just didn't get it. He didn't understand, like, I was uh, on mission. I was on mission. I was, I was focused on the fact that I was about that afternoon going to go throw water balloons at some junior hires for the glory of God. <laughs> right? But that's real. I mean, and I know that, that sounds funny, but, like, that's legitimate. That's what was going on there. For him, he couldn't get over the fact that, like, I'm supposed to be a pastor. 
and I'm in the church office, and I'm wearing a tank top, and that's unacceptable. I needed to be in a full suit. Um, or I don't know. I don't know what level would have been acceptable for him, but that wasn't acceptable. Paul does everything for the sake of the gospel. So the question for us is then, how do we adapt to different situations um, and groups of people, right? So, so when we think about this for our own lives, right, most of the time we're not going to a different country to go live in a, a totally different culture, right? Most of us aren't doing that. You might do that at some point in your life, and it's important to look up and learn the, the customs and the ways and ask questions uh, respectfully to like learn how can I adapt to this culture that I'm going to go and, and try to preach the gospel to people. But in your own life, that often just looks like how do you blend in? How can you just be a part of what is going on? So like if you're invited to a party and it's you know not a, a Christian event, it's just like a work co-worker's party or a neighborhood party or something like that, you can go and, and be normal. Like you don't need to sin, but like most of what happens at a party is not sin. And you should be able to go and not be weird, which is hard for Christians, right? But you should be able to go and just be at the party and talk to people and have a good time, right? On, on the flip side of that, we might have something like, what if you get invited to go to uh, dinner at, at a Muslim's house? Maybe you have a coworker who's a Muslim, they invite you over. You might need to look up a little bit about like, hey, what do we do in that situation? How, how do they live? What are their customs? What are the things that I should do? And a lot of it does involve just asking questions respectfully, but you can even just like Google stuff now. Um, I provide at the end of the study guide if you wanted to, to check it out. Uh, not that it necessarily applies to anybody here right now, although it might at some point in your life. But I just Googled and found this a missionary wrote a, a little blog post on 10 things to know when visiting a Muslim home. That he gets questions. He is a missionary to Muslims and he gets questions about like, what do I do if I get invited to a Muslim's home? And he just wrote it like, it's really quick read. And then you would like kind of be prepared and like, oh, hey, here's what I sh maybe should expect. But everything should be for the sake of the gospel. Paul's focused on the mission that God has given to all believers to take the gospel to the world. And he also recognizes that he receives a benefit when he preaches the gospel to someone and they accept it, right? He says at the end there, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. When someone comes to faith in Christ, we get to share in their joy and freedom. And this reward for Paul is not a secondary motivation. Paul sees this as integral to why he does what he does. He knows that he will receive an imperishable wreath, which we'll see next here in verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under my control, lest my, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul uses sports analogies here to explain his motivation and discipline. And uh, I, I know this is something that, that as I like, was coming up in seminary, that, like, something that they teach now to pastors is like, hey, listen, women don't appreciate sports metaphors 
in your sermons. They, like, they don't like sports metaphors. But I just want to show you, Paul uses sports metaphors. So this is an ancient practice. Now this is, <laughs> this is 2,000 years of men using sports metaphors to talk about Jesus. So just saying, Paul did it, so I feel I can do it. Okay. <laughs> just. All right, so here he uses these to explain his motivation and his discipline. First, he uses a race, right? He says, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. He compares working for the kingdom of God with running a race. Saying so we're, all, we're all running in this race, and we're running with a goal in mind to win the prize. And so we exercise self-control in all things, right? Athletes do this. They exercise, everything that they do is related to their ability to be competitive. So professional athletes, someone who's focused, even, even amateur athletes who are focused on their goal, Olympic athletes, these kind of people, everything they do is at the mind of how will this allow me to be competitive? So what they eat, their diet is certainly impacted by that. Their training, right? How much training they do, where, how they train. Do they do weightlifting? Do they do cardio? Do they, are, are they flexible? There's a flexibility element. You know, every bit of their training is part of that. Their sleep is a big part of that. If you ever look into professional athletes and how much they sleep, it's like a crazy amount because they know that their body is their tool and it needs to be well-rested. And, and even other activities, or lack thereof, are, are a part of, uh, uh, of their ability to compete, right? So there are athletes that go like, yeah, I'm not going to go do some extreme sport in the off-season, or I'm not going to do something where I might get injured in the off-season because I want to be able to compete. Now, they don't all do this, but when they do, when you have like a, a professional athlete who, um, you know, in the off-season is out... Uh, riding their motorcycle or dirt bike or something like that and get in an accident, injure themselves, and now they're sitting out part of the season, everybody just calls them an idiot, right? Why? Because they were not focused on their goal. They were not focused on their ability to be competitive. And what Paul is saying here is that as Christians, we should be self-controlled for the same reason, that our desire is actually greater than an athlete's desire, that our desire is to please our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to carry out the mission that he has given us. And so everything in our lives should be considered, how does this affect my ability to proclaim the gospel? How does this affect my ability to share the love of Jesus with people that I encounter? Paul's other analogies that he is too, he says like, I don't run aimlessly and I don't box as though beating the air. And both of these, he's, he's pointing to this idea that if you're running, if you want to be efficient and fast, you need to run in a straight line, right? That's pretty simple to understand, right? If you're weaving all over the place, you're going to go slower than somebody who's going in a straight line. That's why distance runners are taught to fix their eyes on a point in the far distance and just run toward that. And if they do that, they will run in a straight line. That's what Paul is saying here. He's like, I've got to be efficient. I want to be focused on my goal. He also uses a boxing analogy here that, that he's saying, I don't beat the air. Like, I don't throw worthless punches, right? Which is, is a strategy that's still used in boxing today is to get your opponent, opponent to throw useless punches, meaning they either like either dodging punches so that they're missing or you got the old like rope-a-dope strategy, which is like you kind of get in a protective pose and get your opponent to just throw punches that are not really hurting you and they're ineffective. 
and it wears their, that person out. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, as we do ministry, we should not be engaged in ministry aimlessly. We should know why we're doing what we're doing. We shouldn't do things just to do them or even just because people like them. We should do them because they're strategic for the mission that God has given us to do. When we consider what the church is called to do, we really have five purposes that, that we're, everything we do should be in service of one of these five purposes. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, evangelism, and service. That those five things are what the church is called to do. So that's when one of our ministry leaders comes to me and says, like, hey, I want to do this event, I kind of go, okay, which of the five is it doing? It's got to do at least one, hopefully two, somehow. But which of those things is it doing? Because if it's not to one of those purposes, we shouldn't do it, even if it's something that everybody wants to do. Because we need to be strategic in doing what God has asked us to do. Paul's also disciplined because he doesn't want to disqualify himself. And again, sports analogy, he's saying he's following the rules, he's being disciplined just like an athlete who doesn't want to be disqualified on a technicality. He says, I don't want to put all this effort in and then be disqualified on a technicality. And as Christians, we should also practice discipline so that we're effective for ministry and so that we don't succumb to temptation and disqualify ourselves. I'm going to wrap up, I'm going to re, uh, have us wrap, wrap up this sermon, but then I've got two things that I want to add on to that that are, are certainly related to this idea of mission and how we engage uh, in the culture. But I'll, first I'll wrap up the, the, the sermon and then we'll talk about those things. So number one, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, embrace the humility of Christ. Where Jesus came, took on the likeness of men, surrendered the use of his divine rights, to reach us, we should also embrace that humility and that desire to reach people. And as we do that, we should be strategic as we seek to reach the lost. Think about how we can be strategic with that. And then number three, we should approach the mission like an athlete. We should be self-controlled. We should be disciplined. We should be strategic, effective. One of the ways that, that I would like to encourage us to do that and to, to help us be focused on the mission is to develop uh, this idea of a pray and watch list. So a pray and watch list um, is something, that's, it's not something I made up, it's something that a lot of churches do, a lot of uh, discipleship programs talk about this. Um, this is the idea of having a list of people that you know who need to know Jesus, um, that you are praying for regularly. So it's getting a list of Five to ten people, I think, is pretty good of family members, coworkers, neighbors, people that are in your life, not like not people that you don't know personally, not like celebrities. These are people that you're engaged with in life. Um, because I don't want you to just fill your list with politicians. I understand the temptation, but it's not really the purpose of this. You could do that separate. They're worth praying for, but but not for the not not what this is. Um, this is people that, you're, that you share life with because you're going to pray for them and then you're going to watch and see how God moves in their life. And sometimes that will mean that God is putting something on your heart to do something, to either show the love of Jesus to them, to serve them in some way, or to actually speak in, into their lives and, and preach the gospel to them and share verbally the love of Jesus, not just through um, loving them and serving them in some way. 
Um, and this is something we'll be utilizing in our community groups that we'll be having people go around and talk about this um, regularly and, and share about their list and the people that are on it and be praying for one another's lists as well. That's all related to something that I shared at the annual meeting last week, which was our, is our Focus 2023. So um, this is something that I, I started in 2019 when, when I first came on here. Um, and, and we had our annual meeting. I kind of presented our focus for um, that year, and I did it again in 2020. And and then that seemed like crazy because it, you know I was just barely getting through each week during the pandemic. And uh, as we've been rebuilding and, and and restarting things, this is something that I I wanted to bring back. Uh, idea of as a church, what are we focused on? Where are, what is the direction that we're going? As we think about that idea of not running aimlessly, what are we running toward, and what are some things that we want to do to be strategic in our mission to reach the lost here in El Dorado County? And so, three things that I want us to focus on. Number one is community engagement. This is the idea of how how aware is the community of who we are and what we're doing and our presence and and even that we exist. Um, so some of that will be like actively being involved in community events, having booths set uh, at different community events and, and just having a presence, maybe even a service presence in some, um, in some ways. And so looking at how do we engage um, with the community around us. And then more specifically to individuals, we want to be living a missionary lifestyle. And as we talked about this idea of being all things to all people and, and all of that, we should be thinking in those ways. We should be thinking of ourselves as a missionary. It's easy to think of a missionary as a missionary and even for a missionary to think of themselves as a missionary because they're in a foreign culture. When they're driving around, when they're walking around, it's all foreign to them. And so it's easy for them to consider my citizenship is in heaven. I'm here trying to reach these people. How can I do that effectively? How can I become like these people that I might reach them for the glory of God? But we should have that same mindset. Wherever you have been placed in the job that you're in, the neighborhood that you're in, the community that you're in, God has placed you there strategically to reach people for his glory. So are we actively living uh, that missionary lifestyle? That's something that I think we should be focused on in this coming year. And then lastly, developing relationships, developing existing relationships that we have. So that would certainly involve within the church, and we'll be doing that through like community groups, um, the legacy ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry will be a part of that. How do we develop relationships within the church? But then also, how do we develop relationships with those on the fringes of the church? We've got a lot of people who are kind of on the fringes of the church, people like our Wednesday Cub families who come here, they're on campus pretty frequently, but can we deepen those relationships? Can we develop those relationships that we might draw them in and they might get to, to know and love Jesus as well? Um, so those are kind of the, the things that I would like us as a church to be focused on uh, in this coming, uh, in, the, in this next year. Um, thank you for listening to that a little bit. Um, would you pray with me? I'm going to pray here in just a second, and then we'll take communion together. And then we'll sing one final song. After that, there'll be a prayer team available over here if you'd like prayer for anything. And there's refreshments in the courtyard. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather in your name, that we can hear your word and be challenged by Paul's, um, Paul's words, his desire, his laser focus on the mission that you have given us. And I pray that we too would be focused on the mission that you've given us to take your love, to take your message of salvation to the world. 
And God, may you use us in the, the small part of the world that you have placed each and every one of us. I pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.